Yeah, maybe I should just make it sort of clear what my background is and what I'll try and do in this talk and what I won't try and do. So I work mainly in philosophy. Um, my background's in ethics and political philosophy. But as was said, I've also got sort of research interests in a number of issues in applied ethics, including transitional justice. Um, and as part of exploring and developing those research interests, I've worked with quite, well, I've worked mainly with one international NGO since 2007 on a few projects that have clear international uh, transitional justice um, elements. So first in Iraq, then in Kenya, and then most recently in Libya. Um, given my background, I'm not sort of a regional expert. I'm certainly no expert in Libya or the Middle East or North Africa region. I'm not really either a transitional justice expert. Um, but what I'm going to try and do is just talk a little bit about the experience we had in Libya, which is still ongoing. Um, talk a little bit about the political situation there and the transitional justice situation there. And then at the end, I'm going to, I think, try and highlight three issues that I think are particularly interesting to talk about in the Libyan context. And then I very much look forward also to hearing your perspectives and um, hearing what you have to say about those things. Um, so, you know, apologies for any inaccuracies to um, those who know more about the region or about Libya than I do. Um, I'm going to try and be sort of be reasonably informal um, and just talk a little bit about our actual experiences on the ground there. Um, so first, just to make sure we're all on the same page, I'm not quite sure how well versed everyone is in this specific Libyan context. Um, Libya declared its independence in 1951. 1969, Muammar Gaddafi led a successful military coup, um, set about after some time um, creating a number of political, legal reforms, eventually creating his big uh, great socialist people's Libyan Arab Jamaria in 1977. Um, from the mid-1970s onwards, um, growth in, in particular, oil revenues fueled quite a lot of development in Libya, much of which was quite uneven, so we'll come back to that in a little bit. But the eastern part of the country, for example, was, uh, in the eyes of many who lived there, neglected at the cost of areas um, that were perceived as more loyal to the Gaddafi regime. So there was definitely development, but it was perceived as uneven. And eventually, corruption, serious human rights abuses came to characterize what was an increasingly dysfunctional state. And I mention that because you'll probably detect, detect in what I sort of say here, a sort of note of sympathy for a lot of the current Libyan political actors. And that, I think, is in part due to the fact that I think maybe we tend to underestimate just quite how dysfunctional the state was eventually and how dysfunctional it became how little pre-existing institutional capacity there was in Libya at the time of revolution as a consequence of numerous state and judicial reforms um, undertaken by the Gaddafi regime that created ministries that had very unclear mandates that were at times set up to purposefully compete and conflict with each other, um, that seriously undermined both the independence and the capacity of the judiciary um, and these are some of the issues that I'll come back to. So I think it's worth noting that a number of these problems have roots that are go quite deep in sort of recent living history. Um, just also to recap what happened um, in Libya during the revolution, 
on the 15th, though many Libyans will refer to it as the 17th of February. Um, protests started in the eastern part of the country, the part of the country that many felt had been neglected by a lot of the development I talked about earlier. Um, protests started in Benghazi, initially around um, a cluster of human rights related issues, notably the arrest of a prominent human rights lawyer. They soon escalated, became a full-scale rebellion, sort of in line with other rebellions that have been thought of collectively to compromise the Arab Spring. Um, 26th of February, um, UN Security Council Resolution 1970 was passed, which included um, a clause that referred the situation to the ICC. That's again something we'll be coming back to. Um, 27th of February, the National Transitional Council, that's sort of the opposition, was formed um, as the conflict continued to escalate. 17th of March, by now the rebellion is um, well underway. UN Security Council Resolution 1973 authorizes all necessary measures, which almost immediately leads to the consumption of NATO operations in the country, targeting key military installations. Um, in March 2011, a counteroffensive by government troops succeeds in sort of pushing east, um, pushes many of the revolutionaries back further east, uh, they reach Benghazi, a number of the crimes and issues we'll talk about happened during that. And then in August 2011, aided, I think, to a great extent by NATO operations, the revolutionaries eventually are able to mount a coastal offensive westwards um, and take control of Tripoli. Soon after that, the National Transitional Council is recognized by the UN and is now sort of the official representative of the Libyan states. Um, Soon after that, Muammar Gaddafi is captured and killed almost immediately as he attempts to escape what is one of his strongholds in search. And three days after that, the NTC declares victory and the end of the civil war, though sporadic fighting continues in a number of traditional Gaddafi strongholds, notably Beni Walid, until at least January 2012. Um, 7th of July 2012, democratic elections are held, and then about a month after that, the now newly elected General National Council replaces the NTC as the official government of Libya. Um, so just to locate some of that that's on the map, this of course is Libya, this is the Mediterranean, this is Tripoli, the capital here, this is sort of the eastern part of the country, Benghazi here. Revolution starts here, um, quickly spreads to a number of different communities, um, succeeds in pushing some way west, I'm going to draw too precise a line, probably around here. Um, the stalemate sort of evolves. Um, government forces then push the revolutionaries back towards Benghazi, and then aided in large part by NATO efforts, eventually a sort of coastal offensive from around Misrata and also a little bit from the east, pushes in towards Tripoli. Tripoli eventually falls. Gaddafi is killed here in a uh, stronghold of search, and one of the last places that saw fighting was, um, serious fighting was here in Beni Walid, which is also sort of traditional tri tribal stronghold of Gaddafi. Um, there was quite a lot of damage in Libya. I mean, there is quite a lot of reconstruction work to do. This is Babala Zizia, which is Gaddafi's big fort in the center of Tripoli that was subject to very heavy NATO bombing. So um, the central part of Tripoli um, has seen a lot of damage primarily through 
NATO bombing, but also through sort of medium and heavy weapons used by uh, revolutionaries. Um, Mizrata, which was subject to a long protracted siege that saw a lot of casualties, um, has also experienced quite a lot of damage. There's quite a lot of UXOs um, still there. So there was, there was quite a bit of damage done um, as part of this conflict, and there's definitely a big reconstruction job ahead for Libya. That said, Libya is also a very beautiful place. Um, this is some of the old Roman and Phoenician settlements on the uh, Mediterranean coast. So, you know, it's also a very beautiful place if you are going for it. So, I'm not going to really make it about this, but just a few words about what I was doing and what we were doing. Um, so, as was said, I worked for an international NGO called No Peace Without Justice. Um, we did a couple of pre preparatory missions in September and January, but our permanent presence in Libya really started in March 2012. Um, no Peace Without Justice set up locally a program that was mandated, funded specifically to assist Libya with its transitional justice efforts, mainly in response to expressed local needs. So after talking to a variety of actors, both government and civil society, and trying to find out what the needs were, what the objectives and the priorities, um, and whether resources were inadequate, we set up uh, quite an extensive program that's still ongoing. The main two components of that consisted in training to the government, which was primarily done through the Ministry of Justice, and also some support, training, facilitation to local civil society organizations that were also quite active and interested in the transitional justice effort at the time. So to the government, for example, we provided some training and investigation and documentation of major crimes of international law. Um, we provided some access to expert forensic anthropologists and archaeologists to help with some of the mass graves and some of the more complex crime scenes they had to deal with. And then in civil society, we um, worked just to provide basic training and information about the concept of transitional justice and some of the mechanisms it draws on. We worked on youth participation, we trained trial monitors, um, and we also tried to create a sort of network of civil society organizations, many of which were quite new, most of which had been formed essentially in around the early days of the revolution. And we tried to create a sort of network of organizations across the country that had an expressed interest in the transitional justice issue so that they could coordinate the work, share expertise, and try and build some capacity within that network. Also in the hope that when international organizations such as our own eventually leave, we'll leave behind a sort of network of strong, reasonably capacity-rich civil society organizations that can continue some of the oversight that I think the transitional justice process will need, and also some of the advocacy surely needs to stay on track and to stay, uh, to remain a priority um, into the future. That's just a little bit about what we were doing. Um, these are some of our trainings. Um, one thing we never had any problem doing was attracting interest and audiences and people to undertake the training. Um, there was, I think, quite a strong interest in transitional justice, both the concept and the sort of mechanisms of it um, in Libya. So we always had very well-attended and interesting trainings. All right, so moving on a little bit, I just want to talk about the current political situation a little bit, though I'm sure many of you are aware of it already. Um, the current political situation in Libya is, of course, very complex, very dynamic, and I think suffering from and subject to 
a number of divisions that it can be a little bit tricky to, uh, to work out exactly what are. Um, one of the big ones, one of the potentially most useful frameworks for thinking about the current political situation, in particular um, the situation in the national parliaments, is a sort of an ongoing conflict or debate between two very loose blocks of interests. Um, one which, in essence, sees the revolution as an opportunity to completely change the Libyan states, completely remove old actors, and completely reform pre-existing institutions. Um, amongst those are typically persons who were jailed or exiled by the Gaddafi regime, as well as some of the Islamists. Um, and then on the other hand, we have those who, though they were very much on the side of the revolution, remained in Libya, found some way of accommodating or working with the Gaddafi regime, and who as a consequence are less interested in a complete root and branch change um, in Libyan politics and political institutions, and are more interested in drawing a line under that part of the history and finding some productive means of moving on. There's also, and the reasons for this will become clearer in a minute, I think, um, an important division between local and national actors. The national government remains quite weak. It finds it difficult to exercise authority, um, in large part because of the security situation. Consequently, there are a number of very powerful local actors, particularly in the east, that we've seen now recently with respect to um, various attempts to shut down oil production and things like that in the east. Um, and they are, in many ways, um, engaged in a kind of ongoing power struggle with the more national actors. There are also numerous grievances that date back to the revolution itself and to some of the major um, crimes and events that happened there. There's quite a lot, there's quite a large displaced population, for example. Um, and then, of course, there are grievances that date back prior to the revolution um, and to the way in which the state was run under Gaddafi, often using sort of fairly traditional divide and rule tactics. As a consequence of this, the General National Council, the new national government, is finding it difficult to legislate, so Parliament is finding it very difficult to pass laws and get those laws accepted. Um, it's finding it very difficult to exercise its authority, so to implement laws that have been adopted. And it's finding it very difficult to restore any kind of order and control over a very difficult uh, and complex security environment, um, which I'll talk a little bit more about. Um, as a consequence of this, there is, of course, an increasing disillusionment and increasing distrust of the central government as it becomes more and more ineffective and unable to deliver the services and the results that the citizenry are hoping for. Disillusionment and distrust grows. Um, and then, of course, there are some ongoing major political issues. Um, further to the democratic elections in July 2012, there are also um, mandated efforts to draft a new constitution. The process by which this is to be done is being very controversial and subject to a lot of disagreements. Um, the latest is that a committee is to be elected, and the members of that committee are to draft the constitution, after which it will be put first to a vote by parliament, then to a referendum. But there is, as is anticipated, um, a lot of ongoing disagreement about how that committee is to be formed and how it is to be elected whether there are to be quotas on it, those kinds of things. Um, security sector reform, which I referred to earlier. And then also there have been 
quite recently um, a number of disputes about the oil production in the eastern part of the country and how those revenues are to be shared and collected. Um, thought I might just say a little bit about the, the first few weeks in Libya. Um, one of the things we were interested in doing was trying to get a sense of what people then at the time thought of as the transitional justice priorities for Libya. Um, what Libyans, so those Libyans we were able to speak to, thought of as the priorities for the process they wanted to see happen. This was still quite early. Um, and it was a reasonably cohesive list of priorities, I would say, a number of things that um, most people identified. So clearly, most of the people we spoke to were keen to see some kind of accountability for the senior figures in the Gaddafi regime. Um, notably, Muammar Gaddafi himself, of course, um, his immediate family, so in particular some of his sons, including Saif Gaddafi. Um, and they wanted accountability for crimes committed during the revolution, though their definition of those crimes was at times sort of problematic. Um, there wasn't, for example, a great deal of understanding about any kind of distinction to be drawn between a legitimate military operation and a non-legitimate military operation. So many just wanted to see um, punishment and accountability for events that we may have considered to be legitimate military operations. There was also a great deal of appetite for accountability for crimes committed prior to the revolution. Um, so some notable ones there are major prison massacres, for example, the one that happened in Abusalim in the 90s in which large numbers of political prisoners were killed. Those events, I think, were very fresh in many people's minds and were definitely high up on the um, list of things they were now hoping to see accountability for. And then, and this was a little bit more surprising to me, um, almost everyone emphasized the importance of accountability for corruption. I think many people we spoke to had a real sense that Libya had been since 1970 quite a rich country and that somehow that wealth had not been shared equitably or effectively with the population, especially in the East, but also um, in other cities. There was a lack of development, a lack of infrastructure, um, a great deal of income inequality, and for addressing that and holding to account some of the people who were uh, guilty of corruption was very frequently mentioned. Um, we also noted at the time that you know, there were some more troubling expectations. So very few people were interested in holding uh, revolutionary fighters accountable, even for crimes that it was widely um, agreed had committed. And there was also a limited appreciation for any kind of distinction between individual and collective responsibilities. So there was, at least amongst those we spoke to, quite a lot of appetite for collectively punishing, for example, individuals that had belonged to the Gaddafi army or the Gaddafi regime, or even communities or tribes that had been perceived as loyal um, to the Gaddafi regime. Um, the Tawarga, which is a small community outside of Misrata, are a particularly um, clear example of that. They were essentially collectively driven from that village and now live as a displaced people all across um, of Libya and have been unable to return. And much of that, I think, can be traced to sort of the appetites for the reluctance to distinguish individual from collective responsibility that still remains. So a few words about the current transitional justice process in Libya, um, you know, how the process now a couple of years on matches up to those expectations that have been expressed. Um, I think it's fair to say that most people will think it's been so far at least a disappointment, though it is of course ongoing. Um, 
the most recent development is that finally, in the 22nd of September, um, Libya passed a transitional justice law. The GNC initially decided that they were going to, as far as possible, try and retain elements of the existing pre-revolutionary judiciary and also the criminal code, rather than start again from scratch. Obviously, that has certain advantages with respect to retaining capacity, but as we'll see in a minute, it also has certain downsides with respect to trust and confidence in those institutions. But they have also tried to supplement the existing criminal code and the existing judicial institutions with new legislation. It's been very slow, very difficult and tortured. Uh, but finally, on the 22nd of September, a transitional justice law was passed. It's much too soon to know much about how it's going to be implemented or what the final shape is going to be, look, be but I think it's interesting just to note a few elements um, if only to compare it to other similar laws. So it does establish a fact-finding and reconciliation board, and it establishes a compensation and reparations committee. It covers quite a broad time period, so it's mandated to provide, for example, reparations and accountability for crimes committed well before the revolution, and includes, I think, probably the entirety of the Gaddafi uh, period of rule. Um, and at least in principle, it aims to engage and deal with crimes committed against um, all sides of the conflict. Specifically, for example, includes a mandate to look into the condition uh, some of the internally displaced persons I referred to earlier, including in the Tauraga, find themselves in. As of yet, I think it's largely unknown how this law is going to interact with previous bits of transitional justice legislation, including a cluster of laws that were passed in 2012 that are more troubling in the sense that they include, for example, amnesty provisions for any actions committed in service of the revolution or um, with the aim of safeguarding the achievements of the revolution um, that criminalize many aspects of having belonged to or in any way glorified the Gaddafi regime. Um, I think it's unclear whether this new law is meant to supersede those laws or is going to exist alongside it somehow. And of course, the nature and comp uh, composition of the compensation, uh, the fact-finding and reconciliation board is still unknown, and I would imagine is going to be subject to quite protracted disagreements, um, sort of along the lines that has been problematic when it comes to the Constitutional Drafting Committee um, that is to be elected soon. Um, that aside, Perhaps one of the most worrying aspects of the current situation is that there are still very large numbers of Libyans that are being detained. Estimates are very tricky to come by, but the latest estimates I've seen are about, about 7,000 detainees. I should say that's down from about 8,000 in 2012, so it's not changing much either. Um, these are detainees that have been held without trial or any kind of legal process. Um, and only about 3,000 of them are actually being held by the government in official government detention facilities. The rest are being held by armed brigades, militias, um, by other civilians around the country. So the government is both unable to process those it is holding and it is also unable to um, access many of those it does not have control over. There are numerous cases of the government releasing detainees who are then quickly recaptured by armed groups and transferred to other detention centers. Um, I think that is one of the biggest ongoing concerns. Um, as of course are increasing numbers of reports that conditions in these detention centers 
both government and non-government are bad. Um, there are reports of torture and mistreatment, um, as well as, of course, the concerns that arise from a lack of due process and indefinite detention. Um, as I referred to earlier, there are still thousands of Libyans that are internally displaced, in particular those belonging to tribes or communities that are thought to be loyal to the Gaddafi regime have found it almost impossible to return, fearing arbitrary arrest or violent um, retaliation. A few but very few criminal trials have actually taken place within the judiciary and the existing courts. Um, and in our experience, there's also limited leadership and a clear prioritization needed to facilitate a sort of truly national comprehensive transitional justice process. So very few efforts have been made, for example, to come up with any kind of official prioritization of the crimes that are going to be prosecuted, um, to deal with crime sites like mass graves and the kind of, you know, many mass graves are still being dealt with as sort of a hundred individual crime scene rather than as part of one big crime. And that, I think, is really hampering and inhibiting um, the work of an already overstretched um, judiciary and investigative body. Um, there's also some serious questions about the investigative and prosecutorial capacities within both the police and judiciary. Um, as I noted earlier, both these institutions are in many ways the legacies of a Gaddafi era that you know, they didn't invest a great deal in training and in many ways sought to actively undermine the independence of things like the judiciary. So capacity within those organizations is quite limited, especially when it comes to dealing with some of the very complex kinds of crimes that they are now faced with. And then there is, I think, severe public distrust in the judiciary, um, partly as a consequence of the decision not to reform it wholesale, but rather to try and retain some elements of it. Obviously, that has virtues with respect to keeping some capacity within the system, but one of the downsides of that has been that many members of the public seriously doubt the ability of judges and other members of the judiciary to hold accountable the very same people who in many ways appointed them um, or secured them their positions within the judiciary. So the impartiality and the ability of the judiciary to provide general genuine accountability is, I think, um, one that many people question. And then finally, I'll come back to this more in a moment, but as a consequence of a very slow and ineffective judicial process, as a consequence of the fact that transitional justice law has only just been passed, in the absence of a clear national framework and tangible progress on traditional justice issues, an increasing number of civilians and also non-government armed brigades have simply taken justice into their own hands and started to uh, pursue their own version of victor's justice. Um, a lot of property disputes, for example, including property disputes dating back to the Gaddafi era, are, have been settled simply by bringing in armed brigades to help confiscate property, transfer it back to perceived owners obviously without any kind of official records or right to appeal or process being established. Um, there's been increasing numbers of retaliatory executions and killings. Um, as I mentioned earlier, a number of armed brigades run their own detention centers um, in which they jail and investigate crimes on their own, again, without any kind of link to a clear national process. Um, 
at the time when we sort of arrived in 2012, I guess it was sort of unclear whether this was inevitable or not. Um, I mean, to Libya's advantage, I think, was the fact that there had been a reasonably decisive military victory in the sense that there weren't many representatives of the old regime still in a position to wield significant power. And I mean, it was a really fantastic time to be in Libya, especially in the sort of spring, summer of 2012, because civil society was incredibly energized, in particular the youth. There was a lot of appetite for rebuilding Libya, um, for social activism, for creating civil society organizations and civil society campaigns. And I think that was an incredible resource um, for Libya, not just in the realm of transitional justice, but with respect to the whole democratization and state building task. Um, and of course, Libya has reasonably substantive financial resources through its oil revenue that have now been restored. Um, so yeah, this is sort of the first thing you notice when you arrive in Benghazi, which is where I was first based in 2012. Um, very welcoming city, very energized civil society, um, very welcoming of international support, um, and generally a lot of optimism about the kind of Libya that they were now hoping to build. Um, even sort of, this is around a year later, this is what the, this is Tripoli now, the second anniversary of the liberation of Tripoli um, was a really sort of energetic, um, even then, two years on, fun day in Tripoli, still lots of energy, lots of civil society and individual um, social activism going on. Um, I think that is a resource that continues to be there for um, Labour's TJ process. All right, so I said I, th I was just going to highlight what I thought were three issues I sort of want to take out of this sort of description of the current situation in Libya to talk a little bit about and think a little bit about. And I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on either these issues in Libya or how they compare um, or might be applied elsewhere. So one is the link between disarmament and demobilization and the transitional justice process. I think looking at the transitional justice process in Libya, one of the main problems and obstacles it has faced, like so many other aspects of current Libyan politics, is the government's inability to disarm and demobilize non-government security forces. I also think it would be interesting just to talk a little bit about the role between international support for transitional justice and Libya's local process, because I think that has not worked very well. Um, and it would be interesting to think about why that was and what might be done to avoid that happening again elsewhere. And then, and I've sort of hinted at this already, I'd like to just talk a little bit about what I think was sort of perhaps an excessively judicial focus in Libya's own case. Um, to the neglect of some of the non-judicial mechanisms that I think might have usefully supplemented the process during the last couple years when the judicial process has moved reasonably slowly and when there was a lot of civil society um, activists and organizations willing to engage with also some non-judicial mechanisms. So the first thing, um, disarmament and demobilization, I've said this already, but Immediately after the revolution, you know, a very weak, uh, weakened national security apparatus, lots of public distrust of the police, the national army, the centralized security apparatus, lots of sort of newly liberated weapons that were being taken from um, soldiers or from um, barracks or from large arms caches that were hidden all over Libya. 
gave rise to an incredible number of well-armed non-government security forces and armed forces not under government control. Um, initially, these were in many ways encouraged by a government that knew, that knew its own national army and police force were weak. So military councils were set up in many times in communities around the country to try and provide law and order and some sense of stability during what was assumed to be a very challenging transitional process. Um, but eventually the government started to try and integrate these military councils and civilian brigades into a more national force, um, though I think that has been largely unsuccessful. So the main attempt to do that was through the creation of what was to be known as the Libyan Shield Forces and the Supreme Security Committee, meant to be initially parallel in the first instance to the army and to the police. But in many ways, these initiatives were, I think, largely symbolic and quite unsuccessful. I mean, I remember in Tripoli at the time, the visual was essentially that the checkpoints remained, the same brigades remained in the same communities. All that changed was that they all got the same sort of black SCC, Supreme Security Council T-shirt. Um, there was no efforts really to break the chains of command or to integrate them beyond the sort of kind of superficial integration that the same uniform provided. Um, to try and facilitate the process, the government also started providing payments to members of brigades and armed groups that joined um, these two national forces. The only effect that really seems to have had is that it swelled their numbers, so the relatively generous salaries. The salaries were, for example, be better than the salaries that the police and the army offered, only served to inflate the numbers of those groups that were part of the SSC or the Libyan Shield Forces without doing anything to break established chains of command or establish group loyalties. So they became be bigger, better armed, but weren't necessarily integrated in any um, greater sense into any kind of national forces. And I think quite quickly a kind of vicious cycle um, emerged. Um, obviously the proliferation of armed groups not under central government control served to undermine the authority and the ability of the central government to rule effectively. And that very inability and ineffectiveness then quickly became referred to as a further reason to continue to exist um, as an armed brigade in operating independently of the government. So the armed brigades both appealed to the government's inability to exercise its own um, control of the security situation to justify their own existence, and in return continue to undermine the government, central government's authority. Um, I think the sort of both the official, I refer to some um, 2012 legislation that included amnesty provisions for revolutionary fighters, but also the de facto immunity impunity that arose just from the central government's inability to effectively prosecute members of these brigades, further emboldened them and encouraged them to take matters into their own hands, um, both for you know, reasons of transitional justice, as they saw it, but also simply to secure power, financial resources, um, and sort of their stake in whatever territory they happened to have liberated. And this, I think, quickly became very problematic for the transitional justice process. Um, again, a sort of version of the vicious cycle I referred to has emerged where 
the central government's inability to provide accountability and to meet any of the transitional justice priorities I mentioned earlier has been seen by many of the armed groups beyond government control as a reason to take matters into their own hands. But of course, as they take matters into their own hands, they only further weaken the government's ability to demonstrate progress and effectiveness in so doing. Um, I think it's also really limited the General National Council and before then the NTC's ability to exercise the kind of leadership I think the process needs. So there have been frequent instances where armed groups loyal to sort of minorities within the parliament, for example, have intervened either to prevent legislation from being passed or when it came to the political isolation law passed earlier this year to make sure it was passed. Um, parliament has on numerous occasions been surrounded by armed groups beyond government control that are demanding that a vote does take place or does not take place. Government ministries have been subject to occupation by these armed groups and have been essentially forced to do or not do certain things. Um, it has led to a number of further crimes of private retaliation on vengeance being committed free of um, effective accountability. And several of these armed groups are now predictably moving towards becoming more organized criminal networks that again are likely, I think, to further undermine the process and result in further crimes and acts of corruption taking place. This is quite common in Tripoli, obviously, um, a lot of militias that are able to move sort of relatively unimpeded um, through even the capital. The second thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is the relationship between international efforts to facilitate the transitional justice process and Libya's local process. Um, as I'm sure most, or if not all of you are aware, Libya is currently engaged in quite a protracted dispute with the International Criminal Court about where two key figures of the Gaddafi regime are to be tried. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but I mean, I think the big point is however you come down in that dispute, whether you think they should be tried in The Hague or in Libya, the way in which these Libya and the ICC have interacted, I think, cannot supply a sort of desirable model for the way in which the international community supports a local transitional justice process, and it's worth thinking about why it went so badly wrong and what might be done to prevent similar kinds of conflicts arising um, in the future. So the ICC issued three arrest, arrest warrants, one for Muammar Gaddafi, who is deceased, one for one of his sons, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, who has been captured but is currently being held by the Zintani Brigade, which is um, essentially an armed group not under central government control, based in a town a few hours west of Tripoli and by Abdullah al-Samusi, who is married into the Gaddafi family, was for many years um, his intelligence chief, um, is believed to be responsible, amongst other things, for many of the crimes committed during the Gaddafi regime, including the Abu Salim prison massacre I referred to earlier, and he is being held by government forces um, in the dead presence. Um, the latest is essentially that the ICC have eventually now quite recently ruled that Abdul al-Sanusi should be tried in Libya, um, but they have previously ruled that Saif al-Islam Gaddafi should be um, tried in The Hague, though the Libyan government is currently in the process of appealing that decision and the outcome of that um, appeal has not yet been known. 
separately, there is an outstanding arrest warrant for Saif Gaddafi that the ICC is putting um, understandable pressure on the Libyan government to honor by extraditing Saif to The Hague in anticipation of the um, admissibility challenge that Libya has waged against the ICC. So it's a reasonably messy situation, but the main outstanding issue concerns um, SAIF, who is not under government control, but who is subject to an outstanding arrest warrant, and who Libya are campaigning um, and appealing for the right to try in Libya, and the ICC is resisting, and I, I would anticipate that they will lose that admissibility challenge, and the ICC will um, rule that he ought to be tried in The Hague. In any case, I mean, this sort of protracted discussion, I think, has not been very conducive to the transitional justice process in Libya. I think both parties have acted in ways that have fueled a very acrimonious relationship. So Libya has, I think, at times seen this as an opportunity to emphasize its newfound independence and its authority vis-a-vis -vis an international body such as the ICC, most notably when it detained for, or at least sort of sanctioned the detaining of the lawyers the ICC had appointed to defend SAFE um, during their visit to SAFE in Zintan uh, and some of the rhetoric that surrounded that. Um, the ICC in return have, I think, acted unsympathetically towards the Libyan government and have continually <coughs> challenged their ability to provide justice for these crimes in a way that I think was unhelpful. Um, so I think, I mean, the, the state we're at now with respect to transitional justice in Libya and the ICC, I think is not a good place to be. So I guess what I'm interested in doing is thinking a little bit about how we could have avoided it. Um, I think it's had a number of very negative consequences. Um, the first of which is that I think Libya clearly needs international support um, to support its transitional justice process. There clearly isn't enough institutional capacity within the judiciary within the investigative bodies such as the police to provide fair, comprehensive trials, especially for those guilty of very serious crimes. Um, at the same time, we now seem to be at the place where public opinion in Libya is so turned against the ICC and is so distrustful of the ICC that I'm not sure that an ICC trial for someone like SAFE would go very far towards meeting the expectations um, and desire for accountability and justice that ordinary Libyans have. So we seem to have reached a stage now where the primary mechanism we have for providing that support isn't going to be able to do much in the way of satisfying, satisfying ordinary Libyans, um, especially in the cases of Saif and Sunusi. I think the conflict between the ICC and the Libyan government has also served to further undermine the authority of the central government that I've already explained is perceived as weak and ineffectual locally. Continual challenges from an international body, continual criticisms of its ability to provide accountability and justice, to conduct a fair trial and to conduct competent investigations, I don't think has done much to enhance or help it build public confidence locally. I think this is especially serious given that the SEC is concerned with two remaining People, but as I referred to earlier, there are some 7,000 people still awaiting trial in detention centers across the country. Um, and I think the current configuration also makes a fair trial for Sifal Islam Gaddafi much less likely. Um, 
I find it very difficult to imagine a circumstance in which the government of Libya would voluntarily extradite him to The Hague. I think that would be now be perceived as a catastrophic political defeat for them. Um, I also see it very, find it very difficult to imagine that the non-government forces that are currently holding him would be willing to transfer him to government control as long as they suspect that he might, as a consequence, eventually be handed over to The Hague. Um, so I find it difficult to see how the current configuration of events um, is going to lead to a fair trial. Um, what might we take from this? Well, I think one thing definitely to take from this is the need for early, proactive, clear outreach and education about the work and the role of the ICC in a country like Libya. Um, I think if the ICC had been on the ground much earlier, really tried to explain what it is it wants to do, um, what its role is, I think that could have done a lot of good with respect to helping Libyans understand how this international body could fit into their own domestic process, how it could help them secure accountability as opposed to get in the way of it. And I think that's especially true when we consider who these two figures are. I mean, locally, Abdullah uh, Sunisi, for example, was sort of known as the black box because of his role as the um, chief of the intelligence um, services on Gaddafi. He is thought to be sitting on a lot of intelligence about you know, what really happened during certain key events in Libya's history, a lot of the wealth and corruption, um, the whereabouts, a lot of Libya state resources. They're also quite, uh, the revolutionaries are quite keen to recover. A lot of this was taking place at the very same time as sort of revolutionaries were going through government buildings in Tripoli and finding documents that appear to show a great deal of collusion between, for example, British and American intelligence force services and Gaddafi's intelligence services. So there was quite a lot of mistrust of the motives of international organizations and you know, European and North American actors at the time. And I think early outreach, early education about the role, the work, the purpose of the ICC could have done a long, done a long way towards mitigating some of the suspicion that has now sort of taken root. Um, and I also think the current situation, the situation we've ended up now, might encourage us to think about some of the sort of more creative approaches to resolving this issue. So, um, you know, I think it might be interesting to think about the possibility of reaching some kind of compromise where parts of the hearings were heard locally in Libya um, with others held in The Hague. Um, I think it's sort of about time to start exploring some opportunities for providing the Libyan government with some kind of face-saving way of seeing Saif Gaddafi tried internationally, but nevertheless not surrendered unconditionally to the, to the Hague. I think it'd be a good idea to start thinking about some of the ways and some of the ways in which the proceedings of an ICC trial might be adopted in a way that could make that possible. Um, and then finally, um, I'm going on too long here. Um, I think from the very beginning, Libya's process was conceived of primarily as a judicial process. Um, from the very beginning, it was conceived that most of the relevant fact-finding, investigative, and compensation bodies would be staffed by judges and lawyers. Um, control over the transitional justice process was handed largely to the Ministry of Justice. Um, in many ways, of course, this um, was okay, given the lack of capacity there, given the need for some kind of criminal accountability process. 
But in retrospect, and especially now that we sort of realize how slow that judicial process was going to unfold, how much disillusionment and dissatisfaction <sighs> that was going to generate with its sort of slow pace, I think it would have been also really beneficial to focus a little bit more intention also on some of the non-judicial mechanisms that could have complemented this judicial process, um, especially drawing on some of the civil society resources and some of that energy I referred to earlier. I think if the government, but also international actors, had devoted a little bit more attention to creating and fostering and facilitating non-judicial mechanisms as a complement to the judicial ones, that might have gone a long way towards increasing people's patience with the slow progress of the judicial ones and might have helped mitigate some of the problems I referred to earlier. A lot of this was happening throughout my time there, sort of on an ad hoc, local basis, without much funding, without much coordination. Um, so these were very common. These are sort of former government. This is a courthouse in Benghazi that's been turned into a sort of museum that commemorates every person they can identify who died during the revolution and also commemorates the victims of um, political oppression, or for example, there's also a model here of the Abu Salim massacre. Um, there were a number of other sort of memorialization initiatives taking place in Tripoli that aimed to memorialize in some way um, the victims of the conflict. But partly as a consequence of a lack of communication and trust between government and civil society, not much was done to integrate these civil society initiatives, these non-judicial initiatives, into the transitional justice process or to link it with the judicial process in any way. And I think perhaps that was in some ways a missed opportunity. Um, again, this has become very uh, common in Tripoli. This is the exterior wall of Gaddafi's Babalazizia compound in Tripoli that has now become sort of the subject of a lot of commemorative graffiti and arch. But again, this is run primarily by small, under-resourced NGOs. It's not coordinated and it's not being integrated into the process as a whole. But I think perhaps early efforts to do so may have gone some way to, um, towards mitigating and addressing some of the shortcomings, some of the impatience, and some of the disillusionments um, I referred to earlier. I think that's my last slide. Yeah, thanks. So I really appreciate your questions.